Hello everyone, I am Amin Farid and today I'm here with my friends Zoey and Jermaine and uh, we will be talking about our um, top picks for dance in 2019. Hi guys! Hello! Hey there! Right, so um, anybody would like to start to talk about your top picks? Uh, I, I will start with a caveat that it was really hard to choose. So um, I've got a list, but I also liked a lot of things that you like too. So my first two, okay, my, my, I, I'm condensing, I've got six, but I'm calling them five, um, uh, were pieces by William Forsyth, which were presented as a sort of blockbuster program at the Esplanade. One was Impressing the Tsar, which is quite an old piece of his from the 80s, um, which was danced by the Dresden Semper Opera Company in March at the Esplanade. And then there was one of his new newer works, um, Blake Works One, which was um, presented by the Paris Opera Ballet in June. And I've actually never seen Forsyth Works live. It was a real treat. I've seen many things on video and it was fantastic. My second one was a, uh, like the absolute opposite of the Esplanade is a barebone showing in the Prisma studio. That's the Prisma Dance Company um, who lent their studio to Enkire to do a showing of her work Blunt Knife. And that was in June. Um... My number three is not a Singapore uh, piece either. Um, it's Lost Wax by Preeti Atreya, who is a Chennai-based choreographer who showed this um, contemporary work at the Esplanade Annex um, as part of Kala Utsavam just this November. Um, number four was a piece that was part of the Forward Shift Showcase in the Dance Festival. And it's a new work, which is actually still in progress in a way, by Pichet Chun. And it's called Number 60. And that was just mind-blowing because he has taken his lifetime practice and research of Thai Kon classical dance and um, drawn out a set of movement principles and patterns and, and dynamics in almost a mathematical way, which is super impressive. And my last piece is a lecture demonstration by Nirmalis Sheshadri called The Problematic Dancers, which she has been working on all year at the Dance Nucleus, talking about her life history and a relationship with Bharatanatyam and censorship. So that's my five. Wonderful. We would like to um, ask Jermaine for your top five. Yes, sure. Okay, so um, this is in no particular order. Actually, some of the pieces um, I have on my list are from quite early in the year. Um, so it was quite nice to kind of jog my memory and revisit them. So we'll start with uh, something that happened in January as part of the M1 Fringe Festival. This is a piece called Q&A by Rachel Erdos and Dancers. My second pick is a piece called Zero and One by the Pularyang Dance Company. This was part of a double bill um, at the Hawaii Festival this year in February. The third thing on my list is um, the Binary International Artist Showcase, uh, which is part of the M1 Contact um, Contemporary Dance Festival. And this year it was a double bill um, with pieces by Kit Johnson as well as um, Shintaro Oi. And then the fourth piece on my list is... Uh, a piece at Dance Festival called Princess, which I think we will have much to discuss. Um, and actually, I don't have a fifth one because I think it was too hard to decide. So I just decided to go with four. Thanks for donating the extra <laughs> one to me. <laughs> it seems that uh, me and Jermaine, we, we have, um, you know, uh, 
similar um, topics because I like um, Q&A a lot and that was the um, the work at the M1 Fringe this year. Um, and I was also the uh, moderator for the post show. So, you know, it was very well received, I can say. And Bula's work, um, Zero in One, uh, was definitely an eye-opener for me. Princess as well. And I, I, I would also say that um, the work by Prisma and uh, In Situ, Dance in situ. Dance yeah. in situ. Uh, Complexnya, that was wonderful as well. You know, uh, the, the the way they've, they they have, um, you know, created a site-specific work um, in Chinatown, that was wonderful. Um, and for 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 my last um, topic, it's actually groups of, of dancers that were invited from the Nusantara or the Malay world um, for the Malay Heritage Centre's Lintas Nusantara. And for, for that year, for this year in particular, it was also trying to show how these dancers um, were created during the colonial period in trying to, um, you know, show their unhappiness towards the the, the um, their colonial masters. So that was very wonderful um, to watch them as well. Um, yeah. So so th- that was my top five. But maybe you know we could start a conversation about um, you know what we felt with some of the some of the works that that, that we we do we have watched and um, you know would like to talk about. So maybe you know let's talk about princess. So, um, I'll start on that. Princess is a work by a Filipino artist called Isa Hoxson, uh, who recently won a Hugo Boss Award for Asian Artist of the Year. This work, Princess, is the second in a trilogy that she's making called Happy Land, which is questioning this kind of like um, consumerist construction of happiness. So, in Princess, she goes to Snow White and questions why in Hong Kong Disneyland, which employs, uh, which is a major employer of Filipino entertainers as foreign talent there, why the Filipinos are never cast as princesses or in any of the lead roles. And the answer is because they're not white. The Chinese performers really get these parts either. So she's looking at the labour, the labour of creating happiness in the Filipino body and connecting that to that kind of classic domesticated feminine role and she presents this as a, a duet so she's got a doppelganger Roslik Tas um, who's a performance artist and they're both dressed up as Snow White in these really sweet little voices <laughs> yes, I remember it's like the, oh remember hello there <laughs> <laughs> and they come across as very charming and fall into tears in Amin's lap for example <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and charm the audience and then the facade breaks down to start to expose the frustration and the difficulty they have. Yes, and what I really like about Princess is because of the social critique, um, in a way... When I'm was when I was watching it, I was also thinking of the labor and also thinking about the, um, you know, the Filipinos that had to leave um, the Philippines to work elsewhere, and and also the idea of whiteness, um, you know, Snow White and and I like the the layers that she that she was bringing and and, and sharing with us, um, and also very much how you know we were brought into this narrative or non-narrative of just bringing us through this and then suddenly breaking into themselves um you know and having that having that time for us to think about the labor that goes in the acting of of of, of snow white for example of the production of happiness yes in the production of happiness do you mean you have anything to add to that i think the the way she used 
um, repetition. At the beginning, you kind of saw, you, you, I mean, you always see Snow White as this very charming, feminine princess type figure, but the longer it went on, the more kind of creepy it got. Um, because the mimicry was so precise, but yet you never notice these things when you watch like the film or the cartoon. But when you see it, it's like almost larger than life. And then they're, they're coming at you, they're talking to you, like and repeating How are you? the same How lines. Was yeah, it was nice. Like it suddenly you realize that like wow, it's actually something that you never noticed before, but it's kind of so amplified um, in the way that she structured the work. And I think at the end when it kind of like fell apart. Um, it was a little bit surprising, I think, because I didn't expect it to fall apart that much. But I think she she knew that she wanted to go that way and it, I mean, everything came off. Like, the costumes, the hair, the voice, and suddenly you realise that that's like really, it's, you didn't, you couldn't even distinguish them at the beginning at all mm. until the very end. Yeah. And not that the show fell apart. It was that, no. that constructed character the of entire, Snow White yeah. fell apart. I think the, the show like held no, together. No, yes, very like, much. Yeah. I remember going home and feeling really overwhelmed. Um, and, you know, that lasting feeling. And I've never, I've not really watched a show that, that, that gave such a lasting effect um, on me. And, yeah, and that was... <sighs> Yeah, if if no, if I if I can only express it through movement right now, I would. Um, but okay, now um, Moveley will describe you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, anyways, now um, and gesture you know, of supplication. Talking about talking about um, you know happy moments. I felt that watching Bula's work, um, zero in one, uh, that you know gave me a lot of. Um, they brought a lot of smiles because you're, you're seeing this group of gentlemen dancing together and how they are playing. Um, and, you know, I'm just going to uh, pass it to um, Jermaine to probably describe a little bit about Zero in One. Sure. What I remember is that it was a very um, playful and exuberant uh, work, but and yet it was something that was born out of like a very tragic, situation because they had just gone through a typhoon and they were rebuilding their lives and the community and everything but I think um, the the kind of main message of this was the spirit um, that, that kind of held them together and so it was really it started out being they, they all just came out and you saw that the dancers were extremely different like bodies um, personalities but somehow they 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 were play like they were playing catching they were running around like one of them would stop and be like okay I'm out I can't do this anymore um, and there was this I guess it was just kind of very um, uninhibitedly like themselves like you didn't feel like they were acting or they were putting on a show or it was a performance to them they 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 just kind of were okay to be themselves to interact with the audience very um, freely uh, so it's it's there was this like huge piece of blue tap that was on the stage and then they started to to play with it and mold it. And it was super funny like that. The audience was laughing pretty much the entire time or clapping along, singing along. Um, and I, I remember there was one, one image that they made. They, they took the tap and then one guy was at the front and then he was like... And he somehow had water in his mouth, spitting out water and then he was like, oh look, the Malayan! And then oh, the whole entire audience like exploded. <laughs> Yeah, so it was it was just very clever, um, and and I guess a testament to the kind of um, adaptability and kind of creative spirit that came out of the community even through such a hard time. 
Yeah. And and I like when you were saying that they were being themselves because, um, you know, they were themselves, um, many facets of themselves, um, and they were very playful um, and also, you know, uh, challenging, um, you know, stereotypical constructs of masculinity, right? So at moments, you would see one or two of them um, dressing up with their heels on, right? Um, and they're dancing, you know, folk dancers, uh, which, you know, they were wearing um, quite heavy boots. So there was a comparison somewhat of, of a group of men in boots and then you have one of them wearing heels, right? And and, and I thought that was really cute, you know, the way that they, they, they constructed it. Um, and the singing, actually, they have beautiful voices as well. Um, and, it's, and, a folk song they, it's a folk song that they repeated and repeated yeah. and repeated. Yeah. Yes, and and I think they are uh, they are indigenous. Uh, they're from the Paiwan, you know, indigenous tribe. tribe. Yeah. Yes, I think Bula was started it almost as like a kind of community project. He was a dancer at Cloudgate Dance Theatre, and then he decided to to step back and give back to the the tribes where he came from, which some of them which are quite isolated. And these boys he picked. Um, I guess there must have been eight or nine of them. Um, they're not professional dancers. He really just picked guys from the village and they really look like guys from the village. When they're at first sitting and lying on stage, you're like, wow. And those heavy boots you're talking about, those are like those rubber yellow construction boots. Yes. Like they look really like they're sitting by the side of like, you know, some some country road. And the kind of exuberance and authenticity with which they like played these games and sang and danced and uh, kind of challenged each other. Like there was one part with this folk song where they were repeating it over and over. It comes with these like stamping earthy steps. They were challenging each other to outdo each other in terms of like tricks or movement, whether I'm doing a back arch or I'm doing a jump. Yeah, it was very strong. But at the same time, Bula managed to bring in a sense of a choreographic arc that was not narrative, but had different sections that allowed us to see them differently. Quiet, introspective moments as well, showing a kind of sadness. Um, I think for me, the way I was reading those kind of campy moments that you're describing with the heels and some of the feminine gestures were like a kind of sadness about that identity and maybe how difficult it might be to live that. Um, the scene that really stuck with me was when that top transformed into an ocean. There was just one dancer who was rolling very slowly on stage, delicately, beautifully. And it's unexpected because in other sections, he, he looks so awkward. But he was doing these slow, like almost buto-like rolling on the stage. And then the, some of the other dancers, unseen, because it was very dark, were pulling this enormous top. And this is the size of the Esplanade Theatre Studio stage. They were running it back over him and forwards like the ocean. And the light had been made red. So what was normally a very common looking blue top that you see in construction sites really became this sort of surreal black wave. So there, there was really a degree of the kind of mundane and the sublime that I loved in this show. Yeah. And probably we can talk about the next um, work that, um, you know, we liked. Um, it was a Q&A um, by uh, Rachel Eldros um, as part of the M1 Singapore Fringe Festival. Today, Jermaine actually brought um, the coloured cards which we were given during the, the show. Uh, maybe you want to talk a bit about the cards? Yeah, so these were given at the very beginning uh, of the performance. So it being, I think... Uh, very like systematic um, we, we, we think or we hope that the questions will be like kind of addressed in sequence but obviously that didn't happen um, so maybe just to to give an idea of the show um, it's 
basically the show was crafted around these questions and so um, the dancers were created like movement responses to some of these questions uh, some of which were kind of very humorous and very, or some of them were very dramatic and kind of quite introspective. So just to give you a range, um, there is a question in here that says, do you have a secret hunch about how you will die? And then the person is just like being very exaggerated and flailing around on the stage, <laughs> falling over and all that. Um, so and they then, read out the questions. Yes, they yes. do read out the questions. And then, um, of course, uh, the question of if you could wake up tomorrow having gained one quality or ability what would that be and then there is of course this like superhero music and like they're just like flying around and yeah so but then there are also kind of more um uh heartfelt moments like yeah describe your relationship with your mother and then that kind of spawned a very tender duet between two dancers and then a, lo a lot of it was very kind of warm and inviting you you didn't feel like the audience interaction was kind of too much. Um, and even if the questions were posed at you directly, you didn't have to answer them super honestly, I guess. Um, but I think it the, just overall, the atmosphere that was created was one that was kind of very warm and very generous. Mm, I think what I really like about the work was because, you know, she has taken something very simple, um, which we have taken for granted. Questions which, you know, we don't necessarily talk about with other people and tapping into that intimate side because you know other than just watching the, uh, the dancers performing and asking these questions to each other we are also asking these questions to ourselves um, and I felt it was such a good start to the year to watch something like that making us think a little bit about our lives and the people who have impacted us and I, I don't know I those those questions are, are questions which you know sometimes we do ask ourselves but we don't hear it being verbalised or, 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 or asked to another person. We ask ourselves that. We don't necessarily ask it to another person. So I, yeah, I, I remember um, being very emotional at certain parts, especially when they're talking about, you know, with your with your mother or uh, with your father, you know, uh, people who, who you know, uh, were very, uh, you know, important part of your life. So so it was um, definitely it was a very touching moment. So I have a question. Um, not having watched the show, but knowing that the premise was that this is a set of questions that if you put two strangers together to ask each other, they will fall in love. Did you guys fall in love? <laughs> and well, we didn't ask them to each other. So. Yeah. <laughs> not with each other, with the show. But there was a moment when we were asked to look at yeah, yeah. So the, I think, well, so basically these questions are crafted by a psychologist um, and the, the, the kind of um, hypothesis is to increase intimacy um, between two people. And at the end of like going through these questions, you sit with the person and you stare into their eyes for, I think, like three, four minutes. So that's what happened at the end of the show. Mm. So they, they kind of put audience members down and then sat with them mm. and you just waited. And then the, the lights just faded mm -hmm. whenever the time fade, like ended. So I think it, I mean, I think there were people, I, I didn't go down, but I think there were people in there who, who kind of really experienced something, I guess, with the person that they, that they shared the moment with. Um, there were people who went down in a pair, like as friends. And, and someone I know said that you know, it ended up being quite emotional. I guess it's not something that you commonly do, even if you're very close friends. You wouldn't look at the person in silence for like, I guess what, it's quite a long period of time. Wow. 
Yeah. That sounds like it has resonances with Ming Poon's piece on yes, loneliness yes, at Forward to. Shift, yes. where he invites audience members to come down and have a slow dance with him. Mm. Also a really powerful work. So shall we move on to another piece that sure. both of you really liked? Um, again, I really want to hear about this because I was away and didn't get to catch Complex Nya. What happened? Well, um, okay. So, you know, if you guys can also help me, um, I'm just I'm trying to recall. It was, it's at Chinatown. Uh, Honglim Complex. Honglim Complex. Okay. Yeah. Um, yes, I was there. I watched it twice. Um, and, you know, and, and, and the two times I've watched, I watched it, I, I saw many different things. Um, but what I liked was how they, we were able to explore the space, uh, the, uh, the Honglim Complex itself. Um, and the, the sort of... Well, maybe because, you know, of my background, I try to find stories or, or, you know, and I'm trying to look beyond the technique because technique is important. But, you know, I'm just trying to find, I'm trying to make sense of, of what of what they were doing. But what I like was that, you know, they brought me, it felt like I was travelling with them um, to different places. And what I like was a lot of the intimacies of what that space gave. So I remember us starting in... I think it wasn't, it wasn't on the first level. It was. It felt like it was a f- ground floor, but it was not the ground floor. It was the yeah. ground floor of the residential. Yes. Level right? five. Level five, okay. Level five was the ground floor, floor for the, the residential. Yeah, resident. like below is all like the shops. Yes. Yeah. Right, and then um, and slowly, you know, they, they divided us into two groups eventually and we were going up two different ways. Um, and then uh, subsequently, of course, you know, we met up. Yeah, so along the way, we saw saw different things and I was very glad that I went twice so I went followed the other the other group and see what they were up to but you know so so it, it felt nice because I was also you know witnessing moments when they were were very playful but they didn't look like they were playful but they were playing um, and yeah Jermaine you have anything to add to this? I think what's interesting for me is that this is... So this is a work by Prisma and uh, Haizat is the choreographer at Prisma. Um, And this is actually the second piece that I've seen that Haizat has done in Chinatown. So in 2016, he did something as part of the Soul Searching um, It was a collaboration at Smith Street, wasn't it? Yeah. So And it's quite interesting that he's kind of come back to Chinatown Mm. again. Um, and one thing I remember from the first time, because I was part of the Soul Searching project also, is that while we were kind of walking around and looking at places, one of the passersby just kind of remarked and said like, oh, it's so interesting that it's like a Malay artist deciding to make a work in Chinatown. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and to me, it's very interesting that he's kind of drawn to it and he's come back to Chinatown again, of course, in a very different way. Um, and I really enjoyed the, I think this was a little bit more... I want to say aggressive uh, than than his previous work in the sense of wanting to claim the space. The vocabulary seemed a bit more... To me, the word just, is just fierce. I just keep mm. thinking that it's like just how they're approaching it is a lot more... Like there was like a lot of fists, a lot of kind of very strong and almost combative moments, especially between the kind of two rival groups. Um, of dancers, um, and I think it, you it really helps you to see. I think he built it as a performance walk, so you're not just taking the performance, but you're seeing like the gritty tiles, you're seeing like the very rusty grills on the shop fronts, and all these things. And I think I really enjoyed, like you say, how it took you around 
Hong Lim complex. And there were some very interesting turns that you, like, it's a very narrow staircase and suddenly it opens up to a huge square and you didn't expect that at all. Um, and I felt that it was very well done in terms of not just choreographing the dancers, but also choreographing the audience movement and the kind of viewpoints that you would get for each of the scenes. Mm. And closing to the end, I remember they were trying to cue us up and yes. they were quite aggressive. And yes. I was like, I felt like, okay, honestly, in that moment, I felt that they were going to send me to, you know, like um, to a room and I'm going to get... <laughs> You know, something's going to happen to me. But it, it, there was a sense of fear. There was a sense of fear. And I, I, yeah, I thought I was the only one who felt that, in that sense of fierceness. But then eventually, we were, we all met and we were all looking at each other. And then we just got left there. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. yeah. And then you're like, okay. Yeah, that's how it ended. And I was wondering, okay, wow, this is interesting. It's like, you know, I'm yeah. just... Yeah. And they just ran. They ran away. Every, all the, the dancers just ran. And it was just all of us in this tiny square, like... <laughs> Okay. <laughs> so okay. So what's happening next? But yeah, that's how it ended. Yeah, but um, again, and you know, I was trying to recall that moment. I remember um on Lucas, um looking at us and wondering what are we doing, right? Um, and I remember there was one day when they were doing it, and this very big square when we were looking up from the second uh, from the. The, the floor right above. There was also, you know, the Wushu guy, uh, Vincent Ng, was present. I think with his guru because he was an elderly man and they were in that space, um, you know, rehearsing one of their Wushu um, uh, repertoires. Uh, but it was really interesting because, you know, there was a juxtaposition somewhat of, of, of dancers in that square. They were not dancing. They were merely being in the space and somewhat geometric at certain moments. It felt like they were creating patterns with their bodies. Um, wonderful experience. Sounds like there was a lot of subtlety in the way Hazard used his dancers. Yes. 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 There were moments of subtleness and moments of fierceness. So I remember that for, for yeah. But that the fierceness worked in a way it didn't become like sinister or annoying. No, it wasn't sinister. It just felt that you no, know, there was a slight imposition on the bodies the bodies of the people who were present. Um but I think it was just a moment to just make us recall a particular moment in history, probably. I don't know. Uh, I, I've yet to have that conversation with, mm, with Yeah, us. I think it was just kinda to me, I read it as just them having a sense of something that they were fighting for, whether mm. it's to preserve the space or just, you know, the, the I think he wrote in his program notes that he, what he felt about the space was that there was an urge for him to feel that like he wanted to stop time. And I think like dance, like, like you say, I think Dance Institute has done very well in terms of creating or commissioning work, I guess, that is site-specific, but also quite site sensitive in a way like you don't of course you feel like wow I'm putting this dance piece into this kind of very everyday space and it's going to invade it or whatever but I think they have managed to do it in a way that still allows the space and whatever activity that it has to breathe and to go on and it's not kind of just a massive takeover yeah, so I think we've provided some, you know, conversations about the topics that we've had um, for in 2019. Um, so we would like to, you'd like to add something? We've... Well, I just wanted to maybe, since we've got a little time, to draw us to another part of this conversation that we had in preparation for this podcast about... Um, themes or trends that we've noticed this year which we find interesting which may not be linked uh, you know to specific works or that might not have been our top pick work but that we noticed that something interesting was going on um Jermaine would you like to start 
Sure. Um, so I think uh, one thing that was pretty significant this year in the street dance scene um, was uh, the programming of Full Out mm-hmm. at the dance festival. So this is, I th- believe, the first time in a very long time on that the they main have, stage. Yeah, yep. put street dance on the main stage. So usually they have street dance programming as part of their free performances that are usually in the outdoor theatre. 16 Dance Challenge, yeah. namely. So this year, they obviously took a big step and decided to put it on the main mm. like Esplanade Theatre stage. Bringing in these international crews, right? Which is like quite a big deal. Yes, I think they, they have always had very good crews and collaborators that have come in for 16 Dance Challenge, but I think this is uh, obviously a big moment. Mm. Um, but I think for me and the conversations that I've had with the some of the street dancers that were part of it um, is obviously the sense that they were very excited that this is, a, you know, probably the biggest venue that they will, they have played. Um, but I think there's also a sense of, like, what next? Mm. To make such a big jump. And then now we're thinking about next year and, like, well, what is going to happen? Are you going to keep this street dance on the main stage thing going? Or what, what else can be done for the development of street dance? Mm. Because... Apart from giving them a bigger stage, 16 Dance Challenge, which basically invites an international guest and they work with local dancers for 16 hours. So they work for four evenings or something and then they put on a performance, which is usually maybe like five minutes. So, but that doesn't change. The performance platform changed, but they actually still get to work for 16 hours only. So I also wonder what kind of a development is this and whether there can be more steps taken to understand like what the street dance scene is interested in um, and, and what would kind of help them develop. Yeah. And sir, do you have any trends that you'd like to bring up? Well, there were a couple of things for me this year. I think they're not entirely new. It's not that they haven't happened before, but there was a focus on dance and technology, or maybe it's better to say dance and science that I noticed this year. So we did speak about um, Bularayong's um, Zero and One, which was featured as part of uh, a program at the Esplanade... Um, help me, it was called... That which cannot be divided. divided. Yeah, talking about prime numbers. And I believe there was a series of programs. So the Esplanade had one and the NUS Centre for Arts also had a series of programming which was around the the announcement that there's going to be an International Day of Mathematics. And this year was the first year that that happened. So there were the double bill that Bularayong and Albert Tiong presented. There was a whole series of things presented at Centre for the Arts. But there was also, separately from that, um, speaking of science, I attended a very interesting workshop that was um, part of the Asian Dramaturgs Network by the Taiwanese choreographer Su Wenxi. Ah, yeah, Jermaine, you were there there. too. (laughs) Yes. And she was talking about this very special residency that um, she went on that is created for artists at CERN, which is the Nuclear Research Laboratories um, in, it's in Switzerland, I think. Yes. Yeah. And that it was really a process for her of getting to understand the way scientists think. Maybe not how to do the scientific research, and she wasn't there to do that, but to observe it as an artist. And I think it really changed the way she was working and what she was interested in. And we we had a lot of very interesting exercises about how she was approaching making work and physicality and space. And at the end of it, also a very rich discussion. And it's really stayed with me. Um, I think it might have been Hao Nian who mentioned that, you know, it seems that she's created an entirely different dramaturgy. 
it's like a dramaturgy of science, yeah. which is very different from the way we're used to looking at performance or creating or developing the concept for performance. So that was really fascinating. Another technological-ish um, point to mention was that um, in connection with the Forsyth performances that were being presented at the Esplanade, um, the Dance Nucleus also brought in one of uh, Forsyth's ex-company members, Nick Hafner, who worked with him for many years on what Forsyth calls the improvisation technologies, which is a system that he worked on for an uh, immense number of years, looking at different ways to use the physiognomy of the body, but also the geometry of the body to create different movements. And there was uh, a workshop uh, a workshop week as well as talks on that. Um, and that, for me, actually connected very much to the performance of Pichette's that um, I was talking about. Because when I saw what Pichette was doing with his dancer, Jed, I really looked at it and said, oh my God, Pichette Clanchun has created an improvisation technology for an Asian classical dance form. He's gone into an analysis of how the body is used and how space is used and really notated it systematically and created a set of tools which really offers a very different way to approach moving that a classically trained body, not a Forsyth improvisation trained body, can work and create something very interesting. Mm -hmm. um, and that makes a good segue to what I... Um I don't see it as a trend, but an initiative. Initiative by Prisma and um, their collaborators, which also includes myself. Um, it's for reimagined Malay dance. That was uh, it was a uh, showing as part of Got to Move um, at Wisma Gilang Serai, and. I felt that it was a wonderful experience in trying what Prisma did was to try to bring other um kindred choreographers to reimagine Malay dance. Um it's not as advanced as what Pichet could I would have done, um, but it provided space for us to question, um, critique and also, you know, present it in a way which is not how it's presented traditionally. Um, and I thought that was interesting, and especially since the kindred choreographers were of a particular generation. Well, I was the oldest amongst the rest. But it was a wonderful experience in, in trying to have conversations which we rarely have you know, with, with other uh, people within um, the community. And what's important was also trying to bring this conversation to a larger community, which is you know, uh, people who are not necessarily uh, practitioners of the form. Um, and I think, you know, it was interesting because, you know, for the f I felt that wasn't, it was not for the first time, but I felt that it was necessary to for people who are non-practitioners of the form to listen to the practitioners and, and see whether, you know, there were... Uh, in a way to show that there is a sense of inclusivity of a form that can sometimes be quite exclusive. Um, yeah, so I thought you know, it was a good initiative and I hope it will become a trend for 2020. You know, that said, this is something that, you know, um, for a lot of traditional scenes, uh, slow, we see a, a progressively, um, they're opening up um, um, and trying to have this conversation uh, with people outside their form. And when you say people outside the form, I'm just curious, I mean, the people who were there when you talk about non-practitioners, was it mainly um, what we would call a Malay community who are not practitioners or were there also dancers from other disciplines there? So there were dancers, uh, dancers and uh, practitioners from other disciplines, um, you know, theatre makers um, and dancers from the contemporary scene. And not necessarily Malay. 
Not necessarily. So that was wonderful because uh, we were having this discussion in English as well. So, you know, um, but also people who were present were also some veterans as well. Um, and they, they saw for themselves what we were trying to do. You know, I, I felt that it was a necessary um, platform uh, for this kind of conversations, especially from, um, you know, younger generation of practitioners who adore the form but would like to see it to you know to have conversations to to have very critical conversations about the form okay so i think um vibrant was quite a vibrant um conversation about um you know our top picks for um, dance in 2019 and um you know we hope for 2020 to to be even more uh, vibrant and as ex- exciting um and yeah i think that's all from us um you guys thanks have, for the chat yes uh, thank you very much to arts equator as well for inviting us to have this conversation all right and see you guys in 2020 happy holidays Bye-bye.